0: And if I could just remind folks that when they hear this again, I know this is so countercultural. And you start talking about men and women having different roles anywhere and there's not complete equality. That seems to communicate again, inferiority and superiority. But let's remind ourselves that this is not the first relationship where there are roles that don't diminish equality. You go back to the Trinity before the creation of the world. From eternity past, there's always been three persons in the one Godhead father, son, Holy Spirit. The father is the head. The son submits to the father, the spirit submits to the father and the son. They have roles, but they're equal in their godness.
1: Welcome to the Scripture and Plain Reason podcast.
0: An engaging podcast where we affirm the authority and clarity of scripture. God's word is clear and God's word is
1: true. My name is Ryan and my name is Brian. Welcome back, listeners. This is round two of your Q&A, so we're here to take your questions and hopefully do our best to answer them, and we had a really good episode last week when we had some really great questions and even an audio question, Brian.
0: Yeah, that was a lot of fun. In fact, I thought maybe we could kick it off with a question that wasn't included that I wanted to actually throw your way, Ryan, so buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) you are, I think we mentioned this in one of our first episodes, you're a deacon at East Brandywine Baptist Church, where I serve as an elder and pastor, and uh, you oversee the finances at East Brandywine as a deacon. You head up our finance team, you put together the budget team and lead them through the annual construction of the budget through approval, and then you present it to the congregation. What I wanted to ask you is, uh, we're kind of on the tail end, hopefully, of COVID, and we had those months of shutdown. We used to pass the plate. We don't anymore. And I know I've spoken with other pastors just in terms of what they experienced through those moments of, of not regularly meeting, not passing the plate, and how we made it financially. And I just wanted you to comment on what we saw at our local church.
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting four years. This is year four for me on this team. and. I would say the first year plus, maybe I w- was pre COVID. And so uh, it was like any old standard year from a budget and finance perspective. But once COVID hit, things changed pretty dramatically. And I would say what was interesting is things changed both on the income side, so on the giving side mm-hmm. for the church, as well as on the expense or spending side. So we spent a whole lot less through COVID. We did see some drop off in giving as well but praise God our congregation was so generous in their giving throughout covid because we never had concerns that we were not going to be able to make payments to our staff or we were not going to be able to keep the lights on at church and so it was an interesting time to lean on god and praise him for you know the generosity of our church it was pretty amazing it was
0: what did you think about, we stopped passing the plates, obviously, and once we started regathering, we placed these boxes and attached them in the foyer. Now, I had only experienced those in, I think, Presbyterian churches. No offense to my Presbyterian friends. Please don't take any offense. <laughs> Maybe a few congregational churches that I visited when I was in New England, but never a Baptist church that had boxes in the back <laughs> where you place your your contribution there I mean we always passed the plate we always had an offertory and now we don't and I honestly don't know if we're ever going to return to it. Yeah. What do you think about that after passing the plates for so long with the ushers and now we don't.
1: Yeah, we had electronic giving for a few years, maybe a little bit more than a few years before covid hit. And we had a decent amount of folks that were contributing and giving in that, in that form. But as soon as COVID hit, we started doing some of the services outside. We had to transition and think about a way that we could collect folks giving. So uh, we bought these metal boxes and we had them outside in the lawn for people to use to, to provide their offering. And when we moved back inside we realized just given covid and the fact that covid was still around passing the plates might not be overly comfortable for everyone that's in the congregation so we transitioned to a different set of boxes right. that we mounted right to the wall i would say the trend that we've seen at our church is that giving electronically has increased dramatically mm-hmm. we still get people that give their offering through those boxes in the back Far less than when people would give by passing the plate, but certainly we're still receiving some um, offerings through that process, but it's mainly now electronic.
0: Yeah. You know, I've spoken with a few folks just about some that are missing the plates being passed, um, and their viewpoint for some of them is that is their part of their worship, which it certainly is on Lord's Day, and not being able to place that in the plate every Sunday is something missing from their worship experience. And so I hear that. But then I hear the other side that this online giving that's increased has actually helped some people be more regular and faithful in their giving because it automatically gets withdrawn because they set it that way. Yep. So I, I kind of hear both sides. And I, I think one other point that kind of has caused me to say, I like this probably better is where the Lord reminds us that we're not supposed to let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. And whether you believe it or not, there's this pressure when that plate is passed (laughs) that you want to put something in there. I'm going to make a confession. There have been a few times where we've had um, like a visiting, maybe a speaker or um, some type of musical group, and we're supposed to take up a love offering and I'm cashless. I never have cash on me. Same. And my wife is the only one that has a checkbook. And there were a few times where I felt such incredible peer pressure that I got one of the prayer cards and folded it up where it looked like a check. And I did ask the Lord to forgive me because it was complete pride. But there is that pressure, you know, when they're passing the plate that you gotta do something.
1: I so appreciate your Humility and willingness to share that story. That's fantastic.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a little
1: embarrassing. (laughs) Well, I just want to also reiterate my praise for the Lord and just praise for our congregation and their generosity, because as we've now progressed out of COVID, the giving has skyrocketed again. And certainly the growth of our church has skyrocketed pretty tremendously. So that's playing a role. But Just amazing how faithful our congregation has been.
0: Yeah, I agree. I know this is just one question I threw at you about COVID. Maybe one episode we ought to dedicate to the things we learned, navigating through uncharted waters for everybody with a global pandemic. But now we feel like we're on the other side of it, and I certainly hope we are. But thanks for answering that
1: impromptu question. You got it. Why don't we jump into the questions from our listeners? So we'll start with a few church-related questions. Uh, the first one is in relation to healing ministries. So what should we make of these healing ministries? How should we view them and perceive them? And is there some truth to what's being talked about in these healing ministries?
0: Yeah, I think the question is, um, what about these evangelist, televangelist, or um, some of these ministries that are more itinerant that go around and they um, say that they're, in the name of Jesus, giving healing. Um, honestly, I, I used to watch some of them on religious television. I Unfortunately, and I'm ashamed to say, it was more for entertainment than a theological assessment. But this question is about what is the legitimacy of that kind of thing? I think, Ryan, first thing we need to say is Christians still get sick. Mm-hmm. They still suffer. They still die in this life. So no amount of faith makes us immune to a fallen world. So this idea that if you have enough faith in God's promises and care, you will not have sickness or you will never have a lack of money it is not what we see illustrated through the New Testament. So we start there and we say, people like the Apostle Paul, I think he had a good amount of faith, mm-hmm. but he suffered. In fact, Second Corinthians, he talks about how he was beaten and how many times he was beaten. He felt like he was he was nearly dead. He didn't feel like it. He was nearly dead a few sure. on a few occasions, and he even asked the Lord to remove some type of thorn in his flesh. There are a lot of debate about what that was. Some say it was like an eye disease that he had.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah,
0: or or some said it was even seizures that he hmm. would would happen, and he asked the Lord to, to remove these. He asked three times. He said. And the Lord said, no, but my grace is sufficient for you. My strength's made perfect in weakness. So it's not biblical for us to think that God is always going to heal, Um, nor do we have any biblical basis for a ministry of divine healing directly through a human leader. And I think this question is about that. What about these people who will say, God has given me the gift of healing? Now, this does push up just a little bit against, and this is the Scripture in Plain Reason podcast, about two real positions in terms of these supernatural gifts of the Spirit. You and I have talked before about the various categories. One category we look at in First Peter is speaking gifts. God gives gifts of verbal edification to the church, pastors, teachers, counselors. Mm -hmm. He also gives gifts of service like we just referred to in Deacon and and the gifts you bring to our local church and the area of finance and leadership, that kind of thing. But there's also another category, and we call these supernatural gifts. The two positions are, have they ceased or do they continue? Um, I'm of the persuasion that they have mostly ceased, that those supernatural gifts, like healing, like speaking in tongues, like the interpretation of tongues, um, like a word of knowledge, I mean, immediate revelation that God yeah. gives to Christians. Prophecy. And prophecy, like that. exactly. That those no longer necessary because we're told that they were confirmation to the message of the gospel, Hebrews 2 says, and that these signs were given so that others who heard the message would know this was indeed from God. And they were also the fulfillment of prophecy because we're told in places like Joel that these gifts would manifest themselves and affirm that the Spirit of God had come to indwell His people. So with that said, I I lean towards these supernatural gifts are not generally demonstrated anymore. Now, I would say I'm leaky on that, because I have friends who, as missionaries, give testimony uh, to moments where God has, in a supernatural way, gifted them and endowed them in a way that confirmed the message to the people they were preaching the gospel to. Whether it was walking on um, hot ashes or it was being given the gift temporarily to speak in an, a tongue that they had never learned before, I believe these people. I don't think they're lying. So I, I do believe that that there are still moments where God certainly manifests his power. But I think generally for the church, there is no place where we should understand that the gift of healing is going to take place. And just a couple things I would say more to that. Um, Maybe a more current illustration would be Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata is a good illustration of a believer who, after that diving accident, she begged God to heal her, but the Lord did not. And he's instead given her an amazing ministry through Johnny and friends to people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. What we find in the scriptures is that rather than participating in some type of supernatural healing ministry... We as believers are supposed to serve others through their suffering. And the way we do that is by sharing God's compassion, uh, serving the sick in practical ways. We do that at our church. Prayer ministry is really important. And that prayer ministry, we could also say, you and I both enjoyed this with our children. Um, There are moments where we call the elders according to James 5, and Mm -hmm. we ask for them to anoint with oil Mm -hmm. and ask God for his healing. And there's also this, this ultimate that we want to give the eternal hope of salvation to people who are suffering. And if I conclude with, with, I think there are three answers to our prayer for healing. Sometimes God heals immediately. Sometimes he heals eventually. But he will heal all of us ultimately in the new heaven and new earth. Amen. And for this moment, we do not believe that God has endowed any of us with the supernatural gift of healing, but we continue to pray and we continue to ask God for His supernatural but sovereign will.
1: So, just a follow up to that: when you think about healing ministries or what I've heard it claimed as as health and wealth ministries, are those one and the same? Because I think in some cases the health and wealth ministries aren't necessarily an evangelical leader that is claiming to be able to heal, but more so a teacher saying that God can heal and all you have to do is ask him, or God can make you wealthy, all you have to do is is ask him. So, are those two things one in the same? Are they similar? And then maybe to pile onto that, the name it and claim it ministry, is that in line with healing as well? Yeah,
0: good follow-up. I think all of that could go under the umbrella prosperity gospel. So, you've got health, you've got wealth, you've got – You know, you're going to plant a seed. So if you plant a seed, sometimes you'll hear not just the evangelist, but this whole thought of is if you will give this, then God's going to be indebted to give you something back. So it's almost like a vending machine. And you place something in the vending machine, and then you get to choose what kind of soda or snack you'd like. And so God becomes almost the provider or the vendor for a consumer. And again, the scriptures don't demonstrate that at all. I mean, the oldest book in our Bible probably is the book of Job. And Job's friends, they were like broken records. But we have the advantage in the first few chapters of Job to notice that God addresses Satan and he says, have you considered my servant Job? And then God allowed Satan to attack him physically. But what did all of his friends keep saying? It's got to be sin. It's got to be lack of faith. The reason why you're not being healed, the reason why you're suffering, like a broken record, this is the reason. Even the disciples, that time where the uh, man who had been born blind, they said, Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, Neither. But it's that God would be glorified in him. So I think fundamental to the health and wealth or prosperity gospel is this idea that if I do certain things for God, he's indebted to do something back for me. And that's not the life of faith. That's Mm -hmm. walking by sight. And um, it's a very dangerous doctrine. I like where you're going with that. I I think it's a lot more than just the crazies on the religious station on your television Mm -hmm. or your radio. Sometimes this can get into our churches. Christians start thinking, okay, I've done so much for God. He owes me.
1: Another follow-up before we get into the next question because I think speaking in tongues can be a bit of a controversial topic in churches today. And one of the confusing elements of speaking in tongues that I've come across, i love to get your perspective on it, is in relation to Pentecost versus speaking in some kind of angelic language. Is there a specific biblical, a theological definition of speaking in tongues? Is it speaking in other languages when you never had that capability before, but other languages like Spanish and French and right. Russian, or is it literally speaking in some form of angelic language that no one has ever heard before?
0: Yeah. Well, in Acts 2, we have the first mention really of, of this speaking in tongues at Pentecost. And we have that narrative and then we have the only place it's mentioned again in the scriptures is in a rather lengthy section in First Corinthians chapter twelve to fourteen, where we have this large section where Paul's dealing with the church at Corinth about their spiritual gifts and how they use them and employ them to build up the body. Mm-hmm. They're actually, Ryan, two different expressions of the miraculous gift of tongues. So in Acts two, what's happening there is uh, we've got this gathering at Pentecost, this 50 days after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as they gather for Pentecost, this time of harvest and celebration, just as Jesus had promised that they were to wait and pray, um, we have this miraculous gifting of the tongues. We have these fiery tongues come down, and the wind is blowing. But then, what happens is they're accused right away of of being drunk, hmm. and Peter says. We're preaching the gospel, and what was happening is all of these people had gathered from all over the then-known world, and they were hearing the gospel, and the miraculous gift was a speaking in tongues, but it also was speaking a language that was heard and understood in your native language. So it would be like me speaking in English and you being a French speaker born in France, and you understood my language as I spoke it, also communicated to you. Now, it wasn't a miracle of hearing. It was a miracle of speaking. Sure. It really is a reversal of Babel because you remember yeah, in Genesis 11, hair. yeah, the tongues are divided, and this is really a reversal of that. Then when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12-14, to 14, and again, it's probably the earliest letter or earliest known local church that we have written about in the New Testament. And he's dealing with speaking in tongues. And there, when he deals with it, he talks about the gift of tongues that is being used in the local church. So, not like the Acts 2 scenario where it was evangelistic. These are people hearing the gospel for the first time. They leave there believing it, planting churches in places like Crete and all over the, the known world. But in Corinth, they were actually participating in tongues in the church. It seems to be something different, that God was revealing a word to his church through a member or members of the local church, through the miraculous gift of tongues. But Paul begins to regulate it because it appears that while they were exciting services, the services at the Corinth Baptist Church were a little chaotic. (laughs) So he says, only one person can speak at a time. You must have an interpreter. So he gives them some rules and regulations for that. Now, as a pretty much a cessationist that doesn't believe those gifts are available in a general way for the church any longer, I don't see any real emphasis on tongues anywhere else in the New Testament. You read the spiritual gift lists that come later in the New Testament, and we don't see anything about gifting of tongues. Mm -hmm. Um, But that one was different. And some people interpret 1 Corinthians 14 of saying this is more of a devotional gift of tongues where someone in their prayer closet speaks in a tongue that they don't understand, similar to what you see in Romans 8, where the Spirit of God gives you utterance with words that can't be expressed. Sure. And I have good friends who who see that differently. I don't know that um, there needs to be any kind of division over the people of God because 1 Corinthians 12-14 to gives us some real guidelines where if someone believed that they had the gift of tongues and wanted to express that, there are guidelines and guardrails that can protect and make sure that the church stays orderly and not confused by it. And one last thing, I think if anyone tried to practice the gift of tongues in a local church today, it would violate the major principle of 1 Corinthians 12-14, which is clarity, understandability, and no confusion. If someone stood up this coming Sunday and spoke in tongues, it would be confusing, mm-hmm. and I think that would violate that
1: principle that's given in 1 Corinthians 14. It's really helpful, and I know you weren't prepared for that, so I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I did it to you. <laughs> Great. Well, two questions in, and we already got to take a break, so we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Don't forget to subscribe to the Scripture and Plain Reason podcast on your favorite listening platform. This way you'll get updates and notifications when a new episode drops.
0: Brian and I are always planning new episodes, and if you could leave us your ideas on our Facebook, Scripture in Plain Reason, or go to scriptureinplainreason.com, and there's a place there where at the contact section, you can leave a question, you can leave an idea for a future episode. We'd love
1: to hear from you. All right, great. Well, we're back. We're going to try to round out these last few questions. Let's start right here, Brian. When is it okay to leave a local church?
0: Well, if we're talking about our local church, never. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. That's the way I'm supposed to answer, right? Well, well, I think there's some positive reasons to leave a local church, right? So if the Lord calls you to be a missionary, for instance, or to be a pastor, to be part of a nucleus for a church plant, Mm -hmm. and you're going to be part of that core to leave, those are all really good reasons to leave a local church. Painful. No one likes to leave a church that they love, and we certainly don't like to see people leave. But those are really positive. New Testament-emphasized reasons to leave a local church. There's negative reasons too, right? And again, I'm going to give it from the perspective of a pastor. I'm interested to hear your perspective as a deacon, as a layman in the church. But the negative reasons are biblical reasons. If there is lack of preaching of the gospel, Or deficiency in the preaching of the word, or twisting of the word. Sometimes our Bible preaching can be agenda driven, um, where we're instead of exegeting a text, we're isogeating a text, and we are using proof text to try to emphasize some type of agenda or philosophy that we want to promote to the people. Those are reasons that need to be confronted. And if the Bible's not the ultimate rule for faith, and practice in that local church, members should seriously consider leaving a local church. Sometimes the gospel is not just the doctrine, but there's a lack of gospel culture. And what I mean by that is the gospel's mentioned here and there, but it really doesn't pervade the aspects of all ministries um, that we need to repent and place our faith completely in Jesus Christ. There can be like philosophies of ministry that are more attractional. So we're trying to get people in the world kind of like using the church as what has been called flypaper. Mm-hmm. So we'll do things, we'll have music, or we'll have emphases that are primarily targeting, like church marketing. This is, a, in my opinion, an unbiblical ministry philosophy. And it would be a reason for um, me and my family to consider not continuing to covenant with the church if their philosophy began to be... Um, The Lord's Day worship is more for the unbeliever or the unchurched than it is for the church. Mm, That's a good point. So that would be reasons to leave. But let's be honest, we we don't live in first century anymore. Mm -hmm. And in Acts 1 and 2, there was just one church, the church at Jerusalem. And so you either were a Christian and you were part of the church or you weren't. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Now, I'm not saying that there's a problem with the many denominations that we have now. Those primarily happened... Uh, with Protestantism after the Reformation, sure. and for good reason. I'm a Baptist by conviction. But beyond the denominational distinctives of church governance, Presbyterian versus Episcopalian versus Baptistic, there is a, another division that has become very consumeristic, because the honest thing is, in the United States, in most places, you could choose one of 40 gospel preaching churches in one county. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe more, right? Mm -hmm. So it reminds me of, as a kid, I know they still have their Baskin-Robbins ice cream place, but they used to emphasize Baskin-Robbins 31 flavors, right? Choice. 31 flavors, you got choices. And people have choices now. I like to think of uh, what you want to look at for a local church is these load-bearing walls. Now, I'm in no way a carpenter, (laughs) but my dad taught me enough, before you remove a wall, find out if it's load-bearing. If it's just cosmetic, you can move it. But if it's load bearing and you move it, you're going to have a problem with the ceiling above it or other problems with the structure. There's certain things that have to be true in a local church. They have to preach the word and they have to practice the ordinances properly. Um, that's always been the long standing definition according to church history of a local church, mm-hmm. preaching the word, practicing the ordinances properly. And that's baptism and Lord's table. So those are load bearing walls. But now we have the opportunity to look at the window dressings. So maybe I don't like the way they do their music. And here's a church that preaches a gospel, but does the music like I like. And this church preaches a gospel, does the ordinances properly, but they have children's ministries that this one doesn't. Mm. So I'm not going to sit here and say it's wrong for Christians to leave a local church because of one of these consumeristic reasons because we do have choices, mm-hmm. and as Americans, we've grown to appreciate our choices, and um, it always hurts when someone leaves. I would say this, and then I want to hear your perspective. I would say one final thing. I do believe before you leave a church, if you're a member and you've covenanted together, that you owe it to the leadership of that church to at least express what God's doing in your heart mm-hmm. and why you believe that it's no longer God's place for you and your family to be members of. That way you might be able to have an issue that the elders can give you some background on, some more information that would change your mind. And you would say, okay, now I understand that. So sometimes that would happen. Or you might find I have confirmation now that I do need to leave this church because the leadership heard my concern and they don't plan to change something that is so significant that we need to leave. That would be my perspective on when to leave a church.
1: Yeah, I'll just start with, As a member of a church, I'm grateful for the fact that our church will typically communicate to the congregation when someone is leaving, if it is appropriate to communicate that. You know, oftentimes people relocate and we're always saying, hey, we're uh, really going to be sad to see this family go, but they're leaving, they're relocating. Uh, We just want to pray for them and hope that they find a church and wherever they're going or for any other reason if it's appropriate to be able to share because as a member you stop seeing a family or a person in your church you often wonder well, what's going on i wonder where they are what they're doing and you know if you don't have any sense and you have no way of reaching out to them then you know it's nice to hear the the church at least communicate that i'll share an experience for my family in particular coming to east brandywine we left a church because And this was probably a very rare instance, but my wife had a head injury and the way that our previous church was structured and they had their their actual service, it was very dark in the overall room, big screens with a lot of moving pictures and graphics, and it just wasn't good for her to be in an environment like that. So I was going to church for a couple months without her it was really hard for me to continue to go to church without my wife. Mm. You know, you want to be there with your partner. And so that was a big reason why we decided to to move. And certainly we're grateful that we ended up at EBBC.
0: Yeah. And that's one of those fundamental reasons you had choices. Yep. Right. So it wasn't doctrinal. It actually was a physical reason that you needed to
1: mm. look for another church. Yep. All right. So this is another controversial one, I think, for – just a lot of churches in general throughout our country and maybe not in certain denominations. It's not controversial, but I could see it becoming a bit more controversial in many different denominations. But Brian, what place do women have specifically in church leadership?
0: Yeah. What place do women have in the uh, church? I-, I think this question comes to the heart of our God and his wonderful grace and glory created them, male and female. And so um, what we find in the scriptures is early on, the Lord is going to designate some roles in the family. And uh, then we see in the New Testament when the church is created after Acts 2, that there are roles in the church as well. I think sometimes when the word role And difference is mentioned. There seems to be many times an assumption that that's speaking towards inferiority versus superiority. That because if there's any difference in role, that somehow there's lack of equality in personhood. And what we see, first of all, in scripture is men and women were created equal. So we were created in equality, both male and female. So no male has more of the image of God than a female. We both enjoy the same image of God as the other. We also find in 1 Peter 3 verse 7 that men are to treat their wives with gentleness and care and understanding because they are co-heirs of grace, which means there's also equality in salvation and redemption. We're no closer to God because we have been saved and rescued through faith in Jesus Christ than our wife is. Mm -hmm. We are equally redeemed at the foot of the cross. So there's a quality in creation. There's a quality in redemption. But the Lord gives us different roles to play in the home and in the church. So quickly in the home, we are told that the husband is to be the head. In other words, he's to be the leader. When we say head of state, we're not saying domination. Mm -hmm. But we are saying that the leadership role in the home is supposed to be the father's, the dad's, And we see that the woman is supposed to complement the man. We see that in creation, that she was a helpmate to uh, fully um, complete the man. And we see in Ephesians 5 that the husband is to love his wife like Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. And the wife is to respect her husband. That word submit is in the middle voice, which we don't have a middle voice that we reflect um, like they did in Greek, but the middle voice means to do something to yourself. Hmm. And it says that the wife is to submit to her husband, but she's to do it to herself. She's to rank herself under the husband's leadership as unto the Lord. So obviously, if the husband is trying to lead her in an unbiblical way, she's not to submit to that leadership, Mm -hmm. but in the Lord she is. And as she does that, she does that to herself. So if a husband's saying to his wife, you need to submit, he's already out of line. That's not how the scriptures lay it out. Then you get to the church. And the church also has roles. And if I could just remind folks that when they hear this again, I know this is so countercultural. When you start talking about men and women having different roles anywhere, and there's not complete equality, that seems to communicate again, inferiority and superiority. But let's remind ourselves that this is not the first relationship where there are roles that don't diminish equality. You go back to the Trinity, before the creation of the world. From eternity past, there's always been three persons in the one Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is the head. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. They have roles, but they're equal in their Godness. So, the Father is no more God than the Son. And no more God than the Spirit. But they've got distinct roles. They have distinct roles in our salvation. The Father planned it. The Son acted it out through the cross. The Spirit of God now seals it into our heart. And we have the Spirit of God forever now in our souls as believers. All three different roles, but same equality in the Godhead. And there's been perfect communion in the Godhead forever. And there always will be. And in a home and in a church, God is also given roles, and those roles need to be respected. Now to the church and to the question, I'm sorry for all the background, <laughs> to the question, the scriptures really only give one gender-related role exclusion, and that is that of the elder, pastor, bishop, episcopos the various Greek words. So the elder role, according to First Timothy 2, is to be strictly males. they Is reason for that given in the Genesis creation account? We see some hints of this in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, but most specifically in 1 Timothy 3, that the elder role is for the male, that the man is supposed to be the preacher and teacher, the one who authoritatively proclaims the word of God. Now, what we don't have is this same gender designation in the position of the deacon. Now, some are going to find this very controversial, but I just challenge those folks to look at the scriptures with clear eyes. I think one of the reasons why many churches don't have women deacons is because they're insecure in their own position about what God says is the role of the man in the elder position and what that is not for the female in the local church. Mm -hmm. If you're not insecure in your position, you can be very secure in knowing what God doesn't outlaw. (laughs) And what he doesn't outlaw is for women to serve as deacons, which means servants in the church. For instance, Romans 16 calls Phoebe a deacon, uses the masculine, not the feminine. So we have not called our deacons deaconesses at East Brandywine Baptist Church for a reason, because the Bible doesn't call them deaconesses. But maybe a more clear place um, is 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he gives the qualifications for the elders. Then he gives the qualifications for the deacons. And then what we have in our many English translations is we say the wives of the deacons. I don't believe that's a good translation. And I'm not the only one that's brought this up. There is no Greek word for wife in the Greek, only women. And it doesn't seem logical that Paul would give qualifications for elders, for deacons, and then for deacons' wives with no qualifications for elders' wives? Hmm. And he uses the word likewise on all three categories, so it appears that what he's doing here is he's got the qualifications for elders; they must be males. Qualifications for men deacons, and then likewise qualification for women deacons, not the wives of the deacons. Mm-hmm. And so, based on Romans sixteen, Phoebe, and based on First Timothy three, I believe that women should be serving in their local churches, deacons, and all other types of ministry positions throughout the local church. Mm-hmm. There's one role that we're told that the woman is supposed to allow the man to exclusively hold, and God laid out these roles, and that is the place of the elder. But that opens up humongous amount of opportunities for women to serve in their local church. And frankly, as a pastor of East Brandywine, I think we should have our women serving in more opportunities, not less. You see in First Corinthians 14 that women are praying, women are are giving testimonies. Women are, are reading the scriptures and sharing. They're not authoritatively teaching. That's the role of the elder. But they're involved verbally too. So it's not like they should just be quiet. One last thing. Sometimes people come to that 1 Corinthians 14 passage where it says that the women are to be quiet. But what you notice in that passage in context is he's referring to the interpretation of tongues. You asked about that mm-hmm. in an earlier question. And that interpretation of the tongues was an authoritative moment of teaching, and that was a place where, again, the woman was not allowed to be part of that role because that was exclusively to the male. And one more time, that does not communicate inferiority versus superiority. Just like the Trinity, God's assigned roles in the home and
1: in the church. Right, and while deacons are typically servant roles, they're also leadership roles. Correct. so... Women can serve in leadership roles with the exception of the elders. And we're
0: seeing that in our local church, aren't we? We sure are. I mean, we have a lady who is in charge of our entire campus facilities. She directs, operates all of the renovations, maintenance. She does a phenomenal job. We have a lady deacon who's in charge of our ladies' ministry. We have a lady deacon in charge of our mercy ministries who lines up visits, lines up meals. You're right. These require management. They require leadership. So we certainly aren't saying that women can't enjoy using their gifts of leadership in the local church, too. And if I could just say, this is not something our local church has done perfectly, and we can continue to improve because... I I do think at the core of sometimes leaving women on the sideline is our own insecurity about what God says and what he
1: doesn't say. Well, this is going to be a little bit of a longer episode, and we have one more question that we're just, frankly, not going to be able to get to today. So we're going to punt that to a future Q&A about radiometric dating, which I know is a question that came in from one of our listeners. So, again, goes back to Genesis, Old Earth versus New Earth. We'll definitely bake that into a future Q&A session. Sounds good. So what do we have upcoming here in the next episode?
0: Hey, we're going to do something a little different, and we've been doing a lot of little difference. Um, And then we're going to get back into a regular topic. But we have three pastoral interns at our church this summer. And I wanted, because this podcast is primarily for the benefit of our church family, I wanted us to do an interview with with each of them. And um, we're going to put those all in one episode is our plan so we can hear about where they're from, what their future plans are. And I think all of us are going to be interested to know what they learned this summer because they're about to finish
1: their 10-week internship. Love it. Yeah, I can't wait for that. Great. Well, why don't we wrap there? My name is Ryan. And my name is Brian. Join us next time for more scripture
0: and play news. God's Word is true and God's Word is clear.